Welcome to the Story Powers Podcast, the show about the power of stories, the people who tell them, and why you should be doing it too. I'm your host, keynote speaker and storytelling coach, Francisco Mafus. My guest today is Donna Griffith. Donna is a world-renowned corporate storyteller and pitch alchemist. She's helped over 1,500 clients to raise $1.5 billion in funding, and now she's also the author of Sticking to My Story, The Alchemy of Storytelling for Startups, which is already a bestseller. I listen to a lot of people who talk about storytelling, and sometimes doing that research is less than amazing. So it was with some trepidation that I started listening to a podcast Donna was on, but she was so good right off the bat that I actually gave her the greatest compliment a podcast listener can give anyone. I went into my settings and started listening to her at normal speed. Now, it didn't hurt that Donna... (laughs) Don is someone who actually tells stories. She quotes George Costanza from Seinfeld, and she can say some unique stuff like, I always try to eat my own dog food. And that's how I know you're all in for a treat. Ladies and gentlemen, Donna Griffith. Donna, welcome to the show. Well, I do have to say, I prefer I prefer to say I like to drink my own champagne or my own cava since we're in Spain today. <laughs> it sounds a little more elegant than the dog food, but thank you. Normal speed, that's like a record. Wow. It's, uh, it's not an honor that I bestow upon many of the people that I do. <laughs> you, have, you have made my day, and today is actually my live book launch event, and I'm already almost as excited as I was on my wedding day, so you've just brought it up a few levels, Francisco, so thank you. I'm not sure your husband should know that the book launch is as exciting. No, it's okay. <laughs> he, he gets it. He gets it. Believe me, he's more excited for me today than he was on our wedding day, and actually, it was it's pouring rain outside, but, and, but it's the first day of spring, and 12 years ago, today was our first date. Oh. Ah, very so, nice. Yeah, yeah. So he's not particularly sentimental, but hey, he let me sleep in today, made the girls breakfast, got them off to school. You know, there's no mo- more romantic than that, honestly, after after 12 years together. I can maybe think of some things that are slightly more romantic, uh, but you know. <laughs> well, no, what, what really it is, though, is understanding the needs of the people that we love. And that, by the way, just segueing into storytelling is exactly that, because you tell stories based on your, your audience's needs and wants and desires and, and what's missing in their life. And that's the magic that happens. I didn't intend to do that, but it just kind of happened. <laughs> okay, so since we are, we're into the storytelling already, the, the first thing I wanted to ask you, because of the type of storytelling that you help people do, is, is this thing that can come across as perhaps a bit of a silly question, but, but I think actually, bear with me, I think there's interesting layers to peel from it, which is when it comes to startups and, and pitching for funding, when we look at something, we watch something like Shark Tank, right? Or, or the UK version of that, which is Dragon's Den. How does that, in your experience, how does that compare to the real world of pitching? Like, wh- where is that at all right? Where is it completely not the way it, it normally is? And where maybe it should be more like that? 
Well, first of all, I adore Shark Tank. Um, our Saturday morning ritual is to have breakfast and watch Shark Tank with our girls. We're trying to create little entrepreneurs. They're almost 10 and almost seven. And, and you know, we'll stop and we'll explain what evaluation means and what your customer acquisition cost means. So it's really getting them into that conversation. Sorry, sorry, and sorry, I, sorry, sorry. <laughs> You're explaining to your seven-year-old what customer acquisition value is. Because they'll say these terms and they'll be like, what does that mean? And we'll stop it. We'll explain it to them. And that's, by the way, one of the best storytelling exercises you can ever have is trying to explain a complex concept to a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old. It's it's like, if you can do that, you can explain it to anyone because you can't dumb it down. They're very smart and they don't take bullshit. Excuse me, Pete. You can um, swear it. You can swear as they, much as you want. Don't worry about it. Okay, no, it's your, it's, it's good. It's, it's, but um it, because the, if they get it and like you see the little light go on in their eyes, you know you've hit it in a way that you've been clear. So I love Shark Tank. Um, I love what it does for inspiring entrepreneurship. Uh, and what I love most are the personal stories that people tell, you know, where they came up with the motivation and the idea, because to me, that is pure storytelling. Where it's not exactly close, it's like you don't walk into an investor meeting and come out with an investment. I mean, come on, let's get real here. Uh, it's, it's, it, 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 even there, they go into a six months of due diligence, not all deals close. But I think what it's done to inspire people, and I personally think it's it's the best reality show on because it's extremely um, educational. And, and, and you see young people there and you see people that have made it out of nothing. So we have to keep in, in, in you know, there's reality check and they're not really going to just throw money at you. But telling compelling stories is what I think we can take from there most in a short snappy period of time yeah because that's that is the part of the you know where shark tank might or might not differ from from what a good startup pitch should be which is that i think because of that format the you know the, they're very short pitches right is it three minutes uh, i think on shark tank two three something like yeah that. so I, I know that that's not necessarily the the environment that a startup founder uh, or, or hopeful startup founder is going to encounter, but sometimes it is. On pitch competitions and a whole lot of other events, they do only get three minutes or five minutes. So what I wanted more of a technical take from you is, you know, if you only have three minutes, right, let's say five minutes, how much of that should be focused on the story? Because I think on Shark Tank, there's a temptation for that to be more the story than anything else, because it will make for better watching. But is that what a founder should do if they only have that little time? And and my answer is absolutely. It's funny. One of the companies that I, I write about in my book, they're called Cure Life. And they're an amazing company that's found, um, a, you can't say a cure because FDA doesn't allow it, but something that brings blood sugar levels down for diabetic patients and gives them back control over their lives. And, and it was inspired by the founder whose father was diagnosed with diabetes uh, in his 50s, out of the blue, and his life completely got turned around. So oftentimes my clients will come back to me for later rounds or as they grow for sales decks. And he asked me to work with his VP sales and his director of US sales a couple of weeks ago. And they sent me the deck and I'm like, wait, where's Ron's story with his dad? And they said, oh, you know, we're talking to companies like Whole Foods. We have only a few minutes with them, so we can't waste it on the story. 
So what were they giving them? Lists of ingredients and, and supply chain. And I said, guys, you have such a beautiful, unique story. What do you think they're going to remember from these few minutes they have with you? And then it turns out that both the director of sales and the VP sales both had fathers that were diagnosed with with diabetes in the middle of their life. And I'm like, you guys are the company that is on a passionate mission to help people with diabetes live their best lives. That's what they're going to remember. They're not going to remember how much what herbs and and, and that it's all natural. They're not going to remember that. They hear that all the time. They're going to remember that. Stories stick. And that's, you know, why I call the book Sticking to My Story. But it's, it's, that's amazing. Totally be with that. So if you only have a two minute pitch or a five minute pitch, like a demo day for an accelerator or a competition, there's usually they're going to have requirements of what you have to hit on. So I would say at least 20, 30 seconds is devoted to the story, to the problem. Then a simple solution statement showing how it works. If you can, if you have the time to show some kind of demo because people are very visual and they need it. And then some fascinating bits about your market, your achievements, the business, and then boom, that's it. There'll be Q and A later. A short pitch, a quick pitch, as I call it, is an opportunity to make them want to hear more. Okay. You're not going to answer it all in five minutes. And the biggest mistake people make is, hmm, I only have a few minutes. I should talk as much about the business as possible. But then you're just talking to this. You're missing the heart and the gut. And you want to talk to all three. And that's what storytelling helps you do. Yeah. Because the challenge of that type of setup is, particularly for startups, is there's a requirement for, for some business information. You know, you, you can't, as compelling as the story might be, even with just five minutes or even three minutes, you can't get away with telling the most compelling story in the world for two and a half minutes and then kind of trying somehow to try to, to, to turn that into a business. But on the other hand, I mean, 30 seconds is very short. I mean, you can give an idea of what the story is, but I, even that, I think I remember that story from the book, perhaps because I read the book from yesterday to today. Um, but <laughs> I think it's very difficult. You can hint of what the story is. You can probably tell, this is going to sound funny, but you can tell what the story is, but you cannot show it. There's not much showing you can do with you only got 30 seconds. If we shaved down Ron's story and we said something like, you know, I... When, when my father was in his fifties, he was diagnosed with diabetes. And in a matter of days, he went from a vibrant, lively man to someone who needed a nap for an hour a day. And to me, it was devastating. And I set out on a quest to find a cure. And I found all kinds of Ayurvedic and things that helped. And his levels of blood sugar were skyrocketing in spite of Western medicine. And Then I did some research and then you move into the business and you say $1.1 billion annually is spent on treating diabetes in the US. 486 million people are diagnosed each year. It's the biggest epidemic, second only to AIDS of why people, what people die of. And it's a gateway. So we've transitioned from the, the, our story into the business story seamlessly. And then we say, and I wanted to bring this cure to my father, but to all people in the world. And that's why I created Kirlin. So it's a nice little trick and a nice little transition because you're playing off your own story into the big market story. That was 28 seconds, by the way. There you go. See, we did it. So it's, it's totally doable. It's just about shaving it down. And when it's your own story, objectively, it's really hard to do. 
because you've got, it's like, I, I, when, when my oldest was born, people would be like, oh, show me a picture of the baby. I'd show like picture after picture after picture after picture after picture. And then after a while, you realize you've lost your audience. So it's just as effective to show three gorgeous pictures and then move on. And you get the same like, oh, ah, and then as you know, so, so it's the same thing with your business. You could tell your story in a very compact, powerful way and then move on to the business and you've created the same effect, maybe even better. I related a lot to, to that example you gave on the book when you're comparing it to showing baby pictures, because I, I have done this thing that sounds kind of really, I'm not sure cynical is the word, but very calculated, which is I'm going to see people and I know they'll ask about my children. And I know I would like to show them a picture of my kids, because particularly now because they're very young and they're still changing a lot. So I would before I go into wherever I'm going, I'll go through my pictures and I'll find the picture of my kid and I'll just leave it on that one. So as soon as I go into the photos app on on the phone, it's already there. I don't have to go, oh yeah, she's gorgeous. And then you get your phone out and start scrolling and they're like, oh God, they're going to try and find pictures. But if you can just open the phone and go like this, they, they will look, right? But if you're scrolling for the pictures... And that's the perfect example of being prepped. And that's what you should be doing if you're presenting at a conference. Let's say there's a lot of conferences now. Right now in San Francisco, there's the GDC, which is the gaming conference. So I would suggest to, to people, have your demo or a, a screenshot or something cool of your product prepped on your phone. So as you're mingling and somebody's like, oh, tell me about your company, boom, you pull it out. Perfect example, Francisco, because that's exactly we want to be ready to pitch in a pinch at any time to whomever standing in line for coffee on an airplane at the gym for the awkward if you're changing and somebody's, you know, you're pitching their idea to you. And then... Best, best time to pitch anybody is when they're changing. I mean, they can't really run away from you, can they? <laughs> Dripping on tripping on their underwear trying to get away from your boring pitch. That's, that sounds like a Seinfeld moment. That really does. <laughs> um, yeah, can you pitch in a pinch? Sounds like the, the title of some uh, lead magnet. <laughs> um, okay, so there's a line There's a line you've used in the book, and I will give you a softball here to, to explain further, which is uh, the, the villain is the hero of your story. And he, he is. I mean, think about... The great villains. The, the, well, think about the great action adventure movies. Uh, I don't know what the last great one you've seen is. Um, but until the villain makes their entrance, it's just, you know, it looks like a drama or a rom-com or anything. But the minute the villain is there or a villainous act, it all comes into play because the heroes are like, and think of it as like the moon. The moon only shines because the sun is reflecting on it. So if we think of that, that the, the, the hero as the moon and the villain as the sun, which is kind of a, not the way we look at it, then, then, then that really says a lot because we want a villa, villain that even when their sun has set and they're not there, they are still looming large. It's the first time I've ever thought of it that way. But yeah, absolutely. So you need to create a larger than life villain, a pain, a need, an opportunity that your audience has that you have set out to solve, like curing diabetes or like stopping cyber attacks or whatever it might be that your business is focusing on. In that same section of the book, you said, if you have a story that inspired you, that should be your villain story. 
But I read that and I immediately thought, well, if you don't have a story that inspired you, should you even bother with this? I mean, I'm sure there is there, something inspired them. They might not have realized it as a story or turned into a story, but like, if you don't know what the story that inspired you is, what are you doing? You, you kind of should know what inspired you to start your company because setting out on an entrepreneurial journey, you've got to either be absolutely crazy or absolutely inspired or a little bit of both. And I'm married to one of those. Uh, so um, you have to sometimes find the story. Now, it doesn't mean go out and shoot your uncle or, you know, anything like that. Let's, let's, let's not, you don't have to hurt someone in order to have an inspiring story and you don't have to have a, a relative that's suffering. Um, there's many ways we can find the inspiration. It could be something happening in the world. It could be uh, something that happened when you worked at your previous job and you saw there was a big problem and you experienced it firsthand. It could be a client of yours. It could be something, it could be a big number. It could be like, you know, what the spend, if we didn't have Ron's story, we could start off in saying $1.1 billion spent each year on treating diabetes and still 486 million people are being diagnosed and this is set to grow. That's a story because numbers can become stories and numbers are also memorable. And for investors, numbers attached to dollars or euro or, or pounds is a love language. So we want to show something that's larger than life that needs to be solved. Um, the, sometimes with founders, I'll find stories that, that inspire them. I'll, I'll, you know, just out of nowhere, uh, we'll just be looking and find it. Yeah. So you, <laughs> you said something I wanted to pick up on. You said you don't need to shoot your uncle to get an inspiring story. And I, I started thinking, I mean, I think wanting to shoot your uncle is a very relatable story. Not actually doing the shooting, but like, I think if you started a pitch with saying, have you ever been at Thanksgiving dinner and you really, really would like to shoot one of your uncles? <laughs> no, it's usually probably an ant. It's, it's going to be an ant that usually you want to shoot. Maybe it's that ant that you only see for Thanksgiving dinner. Like, I don't know what product would solve that issue, but I'm sure that would be a very relatable story. Absolutely. Uh, I, yeah, definitely. Um, I, as I, I told you before the show, we're, we're about to go have a big family reunion um, in Spain. And uh, there's going to be 12. Uh, so a uh, 10 adults and three kids. One of them's a baby. So uh, we're, we're like plotting on lots of sangria <laughs> to keep us. Is that is that the baby? Is it one of the adults or? No, no, no. Well, I'm, there is uh, an adult that is definitely a baby. We will not say whom, um, but uh, there are a few of them probably. But uh, we'll see. Hopefully, it'll all be good, and 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 the beauty of Spain will will keep us nice and calm, <laughs> serenity now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I watch. I, I'm rewatching the whole of Seinfeld, uh, and my wife is watching it for the first time. And last week. Last week, we watched the Serenity Now Insanity Later episode. <laughs> we were just talking yesterday, speaking of storytelling, it's such a storytelling of the time it was in. I'm wondering how like today's generation is responding to it because it's so misogynistic and it's so like no holds barred and it makes fun of everyone. And I'm thinking, boy, the woke are probably not liking <laughs> very much. I loved it. So I I think it's an interesting thing you say there because I, so I'm watching it with my wife and I'm not finding it that is so misogynistic as it is uh, and I'm forgetting the actual word 
No, he just hates everybody. It's like when you hate people. I, I forgot what's the yeah. word. Um, yeah, oh, and, um, misanthropic. Misanthropic, yeah. yes. Uh, because because if you compare that to friends, which is another thing that was massive in my in my generation, friends doesn't really hold up well. There's a lot of jokes, say for example about the whole you know Ross having a wife that was a lesbian, but then you watch Seinfeld, and even in the episodes where there's an episode where someone's convinced that George and and Jerry are a couple, and every time they say it like they think we're gay, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, even then, even then, there was like this kind of—I uh, mean—but Kramer showing up to Thanksgiving dinner after roasting in the sun and looking like he's wearing blackface. I, I think of these things today. And I live in in Northern California, which is about as woke as you can possibly get. Any more awake, and and we it just like sleep no more. Um, so, so I'm really curious, and I'll have to ask like my younger cousins who are always my touch points for the world of the millennials and the Gen Zers, what, what they think. So I, I feel, I feel like the generation gap is so huge between Gen X and, and, and Gen Z and just pulling back to storytelling for a second, you have to be able to tell a story that appeals to the generation you're talking to. Yeah. I think when I watch it, I'm always, I'm always because I love it so much that I would hate to feel that it just doesn't stack up at all. Like you know, one one comedy that I used to love and I tried watching it again maybe five six years ago and just you just can't watch it is uh, Eddie Murphy's Raw. Like half of the time is just super uncomfortable. It's like oh, this was funny back then. It's not funny anymore. Um, it with Seinfeld it does look to me. I mean, the the race thing might be might be where they let themselves down because it's just not a major factor of it at all, and that alone in itself is a problem. But it feels like they're very aware that when they're saying offensive stuff because they defend themselves. Or one of the characters goes like, "There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. It's like you can you know, but it's really weird. But you can do it. But uh, but anyway, um, yeah, serenity now, insanity later. Right. So we were talking about the. The villain being the problem of the story and how that should be, in, in a way, the hero of, of any story. Now, when it comes to, to the why of your story, of why you're doing it, how much do you feel that that needs to be personal? Because, you know, the example you gave from Kura Life, it's very personal. It's your father or your father-in-law that, that's gotten sick. Now, is it as powerful as if, you know, you were doing your normal job and encountered clients that have this problem do you find it is as powerful or if it's personal it's better it's just different and and if you have a powerful story and usually the powerful stories are there when we're talking about life sciences or pharma or biomed there uh, is like a very richness of story and emotion there which is really nice but for example i worked with a company that was doing devops the first company I ever worked with doing DevOps before JFrog, which is um, one of you know my early clients. Uh, I just went to visit them the other day. They, they, they've gone public and, and I helped them on their first like $4 million pitch deck. Nobody knew what the heck they were doing. So there are so many stories there that we try to tell, but as simple as possible to tell something complex. And, and I love this in Shlomi, the CEO once, you know, and not this visit, another visit, he said to me, because they're now calling it like liquid software. So think about it on your phone, you have a million apps, let's say your, your Gmail or your Facebook or something that you use often. It probably updates 50 times more a day, but you don't know that. Right. And that's 
exactly why JFrog is there. It creates this liquid stream where updates don't disturb the end user process. That's it. As simple as that. And then when you think of the pain behind it, or you can say, how frustrating is it when you try to get onto a website or try to get onto an app and it's down? You want to kill someone. You want to throw your phone. We have zero tolerance for waiting anymore. There you go. So that kind of pain and frustration, I mean, you can't compare somebody coming, being diagnosed with diabetes to somebody waiting for their app to re-app. But it's that same human frustration and that same thing that that is a, a huge business pain. It's not just a personal end thing. If a business can't access their app, they could be losing millions a minute. So, so these pains can be just as acute. Okay, fair enough. The other question I had was very similar to some of the stuff we were talking about just now is when do you find, is there a particular either part of the pitch or type of pitch where a what we normally consider a founder story would be more or less effective than, say, a user story? Are you equally happy f- to have a user story starting a pitch or you always prefer that to be the founder story and then the user story can come in later? Absolutely. I love the user story. I call it the the deconstructed user story, if you can use it. So start off with a client of yours. Now, and this is something I always have to remind my clients. When we're talking about the problem, you don't exist. Your solution doesn't exist. It's a vortex. It's a void that has to be filled. And in a little while, we're going to come show how you fill it. But they always want to jump. And this is what we're doing. I'm like, but you're not there yet. You don't exist. You weren't there for the miserable existence of their life before they found you and everything that was going wrong and the solutions that they tried that didn't work. And then again, you can make the transition. And it's this way for over 57% of the industry who don't have a way to solve this. So you're telling a user story, which is great because it ups your validity and your veracity for for investors because there's someone that you really understand. It's a much bigger market. Then you come in and you talk about your solution and then, okay, let's go back to company X and see how their life has transformed through working with us. And then you talk about the onboarding and some of the features. Again, don't show too many pictures of the baby, just a couple exciting features, wow features, and then the results, the outcome, and a loving testimonial where they're like, I cannot imagine my life without them. I'm never leaving them. Please don't leave me. And, and, and you show the stickiness and the, and the retention levels. I have something that might be a slight digression, but it's not. But w- when you were talking about how they want to talk about the solution, they really want to jump in and talk about the solution. I remember this ad, which I understand to be a somewhat controversial one, which is, I think was called like, it's not about the nail. I don't know if you're familiar with this thing. Right. So you can watch this after we're done and you're going to have strong okay. opinions about it. But essentially it's it's about how I think men keep trying to fix everything at all times. So it's this woman and she has a nail sticking out of her forehead. And she's like, my head hurts a lot and it's really bothering me. And the guy's there like, uh, um, it's the, there's like a nail on your forehead. And she's like, it's not about the nail. Like, I just want to tell you that it's, you know, I'm, I'm upset or it's hurting. And the guy keeps trying to just like, can we just talk about this nail? She's like, it's not about the nail. <laughs> And I know, I know. What was it an advertisement for? My God. I have friends who, who, who watched that and went like, that's exactly my life. That's every relationship I ever had. And I had friends who watched it. It was like, that's really offensive. Like this is, this is not a good look for this woman. 
sometimes we just want to be saying, oh, honey, I understand you're in pain. That's it. That's what I'm thinking of the founder just trying, can, can we just, can I just talk about my solution? I just want to talk about my solution. Can I talk about, no, no, no. It's, let's just talk about the problem a little bit. It's, it's not about you. It's not about the nail. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then that's very apropos because, you know, falling into the trap of a corny kind of car salesman, the, the worst stereotype of a salesperson or like a cute, a home shopping network where they're constantly pushing how great the solution is and how amazing the solution is and why don't you get that this is the best thing ever. But again, think about the moon. The moon is not going to shine unless there's the sun shining on it. So you need to make sure that sun is shining bright. You need to make sure that your villain, the pain is felt so that we really want that solution. Something else that I, I thought was interesting was you said, and I quote, investors need to believe they're contributing toward the significant chance in the market of a bet of bettering people's lives. I don't quote. I, I copied something wrong. Uh, <laughs> so this was this was what Silicon Valley calls the North Star. So I read that, and and I particularly the part about you know they care about making a significant change in people's lives. And my first instinct was saying, really? So so the question is, you know, I, I don't know, not doubting that these people have good intentions and they're not just trying to line their pockets, but is there a risk of someone always try to make this about making the world a better place? Or um, I, I have a friend who works in the tech industry a lot, and he and he says that when he asks and he talks to founders about or CEOs about what their mission is, and he says, and you can't say save the world or anything like save the world in your mission. No, 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 no. And, and North Star is not North Star is not about making the world a better place. That's a answer reserved for a beauty pageant, uh, if those still exist. So North Star is showing how big this could potentially get because investors want to look at something and be like, okay, so they're doing something now that's pretty darn impressive, but oh baby, they're going to go far. And that's actually, uh, and I was just, I, I was writing my speech for, for my launch tonight and I couldn't help but thinking about three really great storytellers of our past several years, Elizabeth Holmes, Adam Neumann, and Samuel Bankman-Fried. And <laughs> they were really great storytellers. They managed to raise a lot of money. Now, I'm not going to put Adam Neumann on the same scale as the other two because I, 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 WeWork really was amazing for the run of it and, and it really did transform a market. The other two did some very malicious things, but I honestly don't think they started out they truly, I think, believed their story and believed that they could make this seismic shift in their market. Somewhere along the way, it shifted from a story to a bald-faced lie, and that is unacceptable in any way, shape, or form. But they told great stories, and they swept so many investors, but two of them, I mean, these are very, very smart people. There's a reason they were swept in and it was the the getting caught up in the big, incredible vision that any of the three could bring. So your North Star is bigger than what you are now. It's not saving the world, but it's going to other markets, creating bigger products, being the go-to solution for what, you know, whatever it is that you're solving. Elizabeth Holmes is a very interesting contrast, perhaps. To some of the some of the things that you talk about in the book, which are you know the the best practices for for a lot of of fundraising, because and again I'm, I'm basing my my understanding of her situation here from having listened to a couple of different podcast series about uh, what she what she did, but 
a lot of the stuff you talk about that companies should do, I think that particularly in the beginning, there was no way she could do that. And even, I think she could make up a lot of stuff, and she did at some point, but essentially in the beginning, she could only talk about the vision. And then a little while later, she could talk about, I think it was Walgreens was their big partnership and perhaps the only one. And apart from that, there was that you know BS about the Pentagon or whatever the, the army was doing. But they didn't have a lot of the numbers that you would want a startup founder using when they're pitching. Which is an interesting question, which is, if the vision is big enough and compelling enough, can a founder get away with very little of the of the other concrete things that they're expected to be showing? Because that kind of sounds like what she did to some extent, unless I'm missing something. So I think probably probably in earlier stages when it's still and you know something that has to pass FDA or something that that has to pass regulations, um, everybody knows they're in it for the long haul. So you can only get so far with a vision story. So usually your early or C, even maybe A or pre A will lean a lot on that big vision story. But then you got to show the results. And one thing I never want anyone storytelling about is their numbers. Okay. Don't try to make your numbers look beautiful. You can highlight the numbers that are real, that are the most compelling numbers. Do not take vanity metrics. Do not lie about them because you will always be found out at some point sooner or later. I know I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this or not listening to this that did get away with it, but there's only so long you can. And once you've killed your credibility, that's it. You're done. Even though Adam Neumann is out raising for another uh, big uh, thing, but I don't think Elizabeth Holmes or SBF is gonna, are going to be out anytime soon raising funding. They'll probably get paid to do some speaking engagements. Um, now, Elizabeth Holmes, the big difference is lives were at risk. And to me, it's such a disappointment um, as a woman entrepreneur that, you know, finally we had this potential for this incredible role model. And once again, as if we needed any more setbacks for women raising funding, now they have an excuse. Oh, well, Elizabeth Holmes. And for, for, for life science, uh, anytime I work with a company that has anything to do with blood and testing, we've got to find a way to say, this is not Terranus. So this is the real Terranus. So don't ever storytell about your numbers or about like your scientific testing facts. Don't do that, period. So what you're saying is, if I want to say that I've been married for 13 years, which is a fact, I can. I perhaps shouldn't say I've been happily married for 13 years because that one can come, that one can come back to bite me. <laughs> I hope, I hope that you're, you're, I don't know, she's probably in the next room, so I don't say that, but it, it's not just. We've, we've been happily married for 13 years, never regretted it for a moment. Well, uh, I'm sure we um, all have honey. our moments. <laughs> we all have our moments, but hey, if you stuck it out 13 years, that's, that's pretty commendable. So. Uh, yes. Um, moving on swiftly. You, you mentioned vision story before. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading, I think I was reading the part of the book where you talk about how, I think it was, it was about rejection emails and how a lot of, a lot of founders that hit it massive had, had a lot of rejection. And I had a lot of fun reading that. Um, I think one of the companies, the, that one of the venture capitals, has 
a anti-achievement. Uh, anti-portfolio, Bessemer, the anti-portfolio. Anti-portfolio, yeah, amazing. I mean, we're all talk about all the all the stuff they didn't invest in, even though they had a chance to. But then I was thinking about about those rejection emails because the example in the book is from Airbnb. There's a, there's a number of them in there, and then I was just thinking. Is it just too harsh to say that perhaps Airbnb could have done with a better vision story? Oh, absolutely. I mean, okay, I've seen their early pitch decks, and I don't think they even realized how far they would go. Because when they started out, it's called Airbnb because of the air mattress. They basically were sending their customers air mattresses and cereal boxes, Obama O's. <laughs> to have a little bed and breakfast, like literally, because they their pain was they couldn't find inexpensive housing for a conference they wanted to attend because they were broke at the time. And then they, you know, you sleep on a friend's floor on an air mattress. And I don't think they ever, I mean, maybe they did. And, and maybe they'll say today they did realize how huge this could possibly be. We're staying in an Airbnb uh, in Spain, it's absolutely beautiful. And it's like, I don't think we ever would have found anything this incredible as a hotel. And, and it completely has changed the way we travel. It's completely transformed the market. So if they knew that vision that they are going to, and back then their vision was travel like a local, which is very true, but it's like, it's transforming. It's making the world a better place, transforming the way we travel. And I love the travel like a local. It just may be going bigger vision, but but enough people got it. They're still around. They're still here. Yeah. I, I think the, the Airbnb story is one that I find super interesting because it's one of the very good examples, to, to my mind, of how some how a founder can use more storytelling to show different parts of their business because Obviously, you have the founder story, which was, you know, Brian and Joe were broke. Uh, there was this big conference, blah, blah, blah. Nobody could find places. They had the idea for Airbnb. They got the air mattresses in their own house. And I think three people stayed with them for 70 bucks a piece or something. And then that was fine. They, they started maxing out their credit cards, got some money. The company moved a little and then they ran out of cash. And that's when they came up with the Obama O's and Captain, Captain McCain, Cap McCain. And Obama O's, which are amazing. I don't know if you've seen the cereal boxes. They look incredible. Great illustrations. So, you know, that was like a super creative thing they did to keep the company going. And then the last bit is one that I think you talk about a lot in the book with when it comes to research and talking to your customers. Because they they ran out of money again and they still couldn't figure it out how why it wasn't working. And then they went and, and visited a lot of their hosts. And that's when they stumble upon the insight that the homes or the houses were a lot nicer than the pictures and then they got professional photographic equipment themselves took a whole bunch of pictures and that's when it started taking off and and i like that story because it's just a to me it's just a great way of saying like you can tell the story of all these things you've done up until now and that answers a whole bunch of questions in a way that perhaps the numbers wouldn't really because if you say we just we took different commercial, uh, alternative commercial endeavors and raised another, I think they raised like $30,000 with a cereal, right? Which is nowhere near as impressive as we made 30 grand selling cereal. 
Can you imagine if they ended up taking off as a serial company? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, uh, and I actually did have a client, uh, recently called, uh, the real serial, uh, company. So, so there's people innovating in serial, but I mean, I think that their journey was absolutely spectacular and such an inspiration to uh, young founders. And and Brian writes at the end of that blog that I, I read, you know, next time you're told no, just remember. And it's very easy to get caught up in the negative and in the no's. Um, and when I was acting in New York and I was auditioning for, for a lot of parts, and, and this was while I was getting my master's. I, I kept saying, you know, you, you get so many rejections. I kept having to say to myself, okay, it's not that I'm not a good actress. I am not the right one for the part, whoever they had in mind. And it's the same thing with investors. They think in patterns. They have a very clear way that they evaluate, which is why I really try to keep this structure of the storytelling very, very clear because I want to fit you right into the structure doesn't mean you're going to be a cookie cutter company. It just means they can analyze you in the way that they need to. Um, but you're going to hear a lot of no's and it doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't great. It means it's not great for them. They don't see it. They had a meeting with their board last week telling them don't invest in travel, I, whatever, and a million and one reasons. And again, you have the power to storytell yourself and say, okay, so this wasn't the right fit because, and somewhere along the line, you might be saying, thankfully, I didn't end up having them invest in me because they're not very nice people. Like you never know what, what it was like SVB right now, the whole thing, my husband has an NFT uh, and smart contract company and it's very high, highly regulated place. So he tried to open an account with Silicon Valley bank and it took a really long time to get approved because of the regulations and it being crypto and, and he had already opened with an online bank by the time they gave him approval. And we're like, Oh my gosh, thank you for that. So again, you never know what you're saved from and, and what, how the pieces come together, but you don't want to get so hard on yourself that, that you, you stop your journey when you're this close. There is a line. I, I can't remember exactly if I've, kind of made this up or if I adopted cut or copied from someone else but it was I think it was if you don't like the way the story ended then realize that you can just make it the end of a chapter and not the end of a story yeah nice or rewrite the end absolutely and again people might say that that's kind of living in in uh, your own little version of reality but I mean, I would, here we are, March 2023, three years ago, we were all sitting in lockdown with our kids at home and trying to survive, not understanding what the heck was going on around us. And I made a very clear choice then that the story I was going to tell was of hope and not of like, oh my gosh, we're all going to be in lockdown from now. Had I known that my kids would be home for as long as they were, I probably would have, you know, I don't know. but each day it was like, I was very mindful about what I chose to consume in terms of content and what I chose to share. And, and I get some, you know, you get the memories back on Facebook and, and I'm really happy that those were the things that are coming back to me now, like the humorous things and the music and all of those. And I'm just like so grateful to be out of that, but I don't think I would have survived that if I hadn't steered the story to the place that everything's going to be okay. The business is going to be okay. Our health is going to be okay. And we're going to come out stronger for this. And now we have plenty of toilet paper and everything's okay. But um, I, I, the world has changed. 
And I think it's really made us more resilient in a lot of ways to change. I've never done well with ambiguity. I, I used to be, you know, uh, I'd audition for a part. I'd camp myself out before a cast list was posted. In, in, in college, I'd like camp out when they were supposed to, they were posting that once upon a time, you couldn't check it on an app. <laughs> the, the grades list. I, I never was good at waiting for things. And I think that this has kind of stretched the muscle in the sense of, of so you always look, I'm, I'm an optimist. I look for the good in a situation. I have to, I have no other choice. That's just who I am. There's something to be said about our ability to to change the meaning or or to some extent choose the meaning of of whatever happens in our life. And I agree that there's an easy criticism of that of you know you're living in your own reality or bubble or whatever. But but it's also true and and I have this with a fairly firm scientific backing from people that have been on the show that our brains work in story form. So something happens or somebody tells you something, there's going to be a story in your mind because that's how we make sense of things. You know, this happened and because of this, this happened and this are the consequences. So there's going to be a story there no matter what. And I think it might be perhaps arrogant, if not completely misguided, to think that there is only one interpretation of those things. I remember when I when I started speaking and I was talking to, to, to people that were more or less in that world. And I would say, oh, no, it's really hard. And, you know, I've, I've had some good gigs, but it's taking a while to sort of get some traction. And they're like, how long have you been doing this for? And I'm like, six months. I was like, when I had been doing this for six months, I was speaking churches for free, right? You've got paid gigs, shut up, right? Before you've been doing this for, you know, three years or four years, you can genuinely expect that it's going to look remotely like like a real business. I mean, in some people we might, but, but you're being silly. And I go, oh, okay, that's interesting to know. And I think that applies for many things. Now, maybe maybe you're an amazing actress and you're being unlucky. Maybe that wasn't exactly what was happening. But, but even if you sucked, even if you sucked, and eventually you got better and then got the part. Or you sucked for a very long time to the point that you gave up and did something else and this is now the thing you're doing and hopefully that thing is now going well, then that's the story, right? We all are our own best storytellers and, and it's it's a gift to be able to do it and anyone can do it. And again, we don't want to lie. It's not that we're, you, you know, your, your bank account is not going to lie about your situation. You can't just go off spending like there was no tomorrow because you've told you yourself can a try. story that you, you, know, <laughs> you can and that's going to stop at some point. But any way we look at the reality. So I'm looking out my window now. It's pouring rain. I have a book launch event. I have a lemon tree here with beautiful lemons popping up and I have a plum tree next to it, which has got just the, the last few pink blossoms on it and mostly with leaves. And I'm thinking I could be, I could be like beating myself up. I'm like, why is it raining on my book last day? And people are going to come. And I could just be thinking, how blessed are we to live in a beautiful place like California and, and we're getting enough rain and these fruit, there'll be plums there in the summer. And you know, this is, it's, and I have a house and I have this, like, it's all a question of perspective of how, of how you do it. And people have met me at different junctures in my life and been like, is this chick for real? Like, and this is just, this is who I am. Even before I was a storyteller, I, I always was like looking at that positive thing, but I'm like, I'm allergic to toxicity and to negativity. And I choose not to make that part of my daily diet. And people that are like that, I, I just don't want to be around too much. It's, it's not good for you. 
Just like eating too much junk food is not good for you. It's, it's good, you know? So I think storytelling is the most powerful tool that we have in our personal and in our business life if we use it in the right way, just like anything else. Now, I have to very strongly resist the urge to start adding some of my usual nonsense to all the lovely things you say. So I I will resist it. Uh, <laughs> and I would let that, that beautiful imagery of the lemon trees and the plum trees and all the inspirational stuff you said be, be, the, be the final note here. Although, you know, the, the, the itch is always there to find some nonsensical angle to the lovely things you said. Um, okay, so... My husband is the same. It's, 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 uh, he, he will always try to throw in that, but you know he still makes me laugh after twelve years. So yes, yes, I, uh, I, as much as I might overestimate how um, how fantastically charming and attractive I might be, I realize that the sense of humor is the glue keeping my marriage together. <laughs> if I, if that goes, I I don't think this is doing it. Like this face is not holding this relationship <laughs> together. Listen, humor and it is is such an important clue. It it truly is. And I think, you know, if we could have lapped our way through the pandemic and and ups and downs in in the the the, the financial markets and who even knows now are we looking at a 2008 being able to like you know choose to bond together through laughter and and making fun of each other whenever that's a gift. My oldest, maybe when she was 4 or 5, once looked at me very seriously and said, um, "Daddy, you are funnier than a snake." And I am still, <laughs> I'm still dying. I took to me a while to figure out what that meant, but but I like the paradox of that. Uh, <laughs> that For her is a snake funny, or is she, no, she, she being like sarcastic? I can't. Is there sarcasm in four or five? Not really. I I think I think that I can interpret that line to mean a lot of things. And I'm sure my wife can interpret that line to mean a lot of things. But the, the reality of it was fairly straightforward. We had gone to, to an animal farm and they had lots of snakes. And she didn't tell us when we were surrounded by snakes. But apparently the snakes are funny. But I am funnier. Right. So. Right. Well, so that's the thing. And, and, and sometimes it's the interpretation that we would give it like, oh, my gosh, is she saying I'm like a snake? Oh, my gosh, my daughter does love it. Again, you, you, you take it to a good way. And that's those are the choices we make. Do we get offended? Do we go hard on ourselves? Do we give up our dreams because someone else said it? I there was a startup that I was in a, a session with investors and they were doing pitches. And one of the investors who was very biting basically said, "You can pack up your bags and leave now." And this startup has gone on to do extremely well. Now, if he had that that moment, listened to that, taken that in, and and gone and beaten himself, who knows? So A, I, I do advise investors to be, you know, a little gentle. Like we don't always have to be as direct. You can give feedback that that builds. It doesn't always have to be destructive. But we really also, it's it's a question of, you know, looking at the world, letting yourself be in that low place, and then, okay, what do I go? Where do I go from here? How do I create a new story? How do I reinvent the story? How do I make my story relevant for these times, which is really, really important too. Yes. And I think also having the realization that when it comes to marketing, uh, we always say that can't be for everyone. Like you can't try to sell to everyone. You can try to to attract every, every single kind of client. That just doesn't work. 
I think similarly, uh, I'm not sure if it's a perfect parallel, but I think anyone trying to promote their startup should realize that you're not going to be for everyone. And that doesn't just mean clients. It also means investors. Some people might love the type of thing you're trying to do and the type of person you are. Some people just won't. So, you know, it would be silly to expect. I always say I'd rather I'd rather be someone's shot of whiskey than everyone's cup of tea. Um, you're not getting out. Uh, granted, with investors, you have to show that a lot of people are going to want your brand of whiskey. You have to be able to show that, prove that they're going to make money. They're not just in it for for shits and giggles. Um, but but at the same time, yes, exactly. You, you're not going to be everyone's perfect vision of the role they want to cast, and and that's just it. You just have to keep going and believing and reinventing and and making your story strong, keeping yourself strong, keeping yourself healthy, and keep going. Perfect. Now you have a a book launch to prepare for. I have screaming children to pacify. Pretty screaming pretty quietly over there. And did you have them like tied up? And... They've been uh, they've been locked in the closet through this time. And I know that one one hour is about how much oxygen that uh, closet will you're, keep. You're a very good so, father, Francisco. Uh, yes. That's very good. Yes, they've been very quiet because I mute my microphone every time I'm not speaking. That's the only reason they've been very quiet. They have not been very quiet. (laughs) All right, so your book, Sticking to to My Story. Yes, there you go. There you go. Perfect. You you were professional. You had gotten it before. Sticking to My Story. This is out now everywhere, right? It's um, on Amazon and other booksellers, but mainly Amazon. It's there. It's still at its promotional rate. And I keep getting emails of people thanking me for writing it. It's the best thing that ever. And and my lofty goal, and that makes me very really happy, but but my lofty goal is to get a copy of this in the hands of every single founder out there. So if you're a startup founder, if you know startup founders, better gift than a bottle of wine. And it really can help. I've, I put my heart and soul into making this the go-to pitch solution. Oh, it's pretty good fun. I mean, it's, this is not really... It's not really my world. I've worked with uh, I've worked with founders. I've worked with entrepreneurs, but there's there's a whole dimension of that that is as I as I read it, it confirms to me that that that's not my my usual arena, and I don't have the knowledge for it. But still, I made it through the two hundred pages within within a few hours. Well, that makes me happy to hear. Yay, that's wonderful. All right. And if anyone wants to check out the rest of the stuff you're doing, I know you're present on LinkedIn. I'll put a link to your to your profile on the show notes. And your website is DonnaGriffith.com. Not Griffith. Not like the actor. T. One T, two X, no H. No H. Yes. And I know in Barcelona, you, you, you there's sometimes you put the H when it's not there. Barcelona, right? No, I'm They do many things. I, I'm not I'm not from Barcelona. I'm from Brazil, so I can diss them as much as I want. But uh, But no. I will put I will put a link to your website uh, in there, and there's an endless amount of testimonials and uh, a whole bunch of other fun stuff. So if anyone wants to check it out, they can do that. All right, everyone, thanks for tuning in. Take care of yourselves, and until next time. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. It's very easy. You open the app and find this show. Then scroll down a little, and when you see the stars, tap. I'd really appreciate it, and it does help other people find us. And if you'd like to get in touch, or find out more about what I do, reach out to me on LinkedIn, or visit my website, storypowers.com.